there a little monkey back there running real fast. <laughs> this may look strange to you. <laughs> I want to, uh, I just, again, you know, last week I stood here and was able to thank all of you, and there's so many people here last week as well that I'm sure aren't today, but just uh, on behalf of my family, I, I just want to say thank you again for being so warm and welcoming and loving, and oh, it's been, it's been tremendous to us. It's just been an amazing blessing. I mean, so many of you have just gathered around us, and those of you who couldn't or had, for whatever reason, we've just felt and sensed the warmth and care and concern. So moving into the community has been a real, just an amazing blessing, and I had a lot of friends uh, and folks I would come in contact with when I would tell them I was moving to Crested Butte. I had the privilege of coming to a church up here to work. They would say, oh, that's such a beautiful place. You know, it's just, you, you know, obviously you're going to go there. You're going to take that job and all that. And you can ride your bike and you can do all those things. And, you know, there was never a question in my mind about the beauty or the fun of Crested Butte. But there was also never a question in my mind that that, that was just a... a a bonus to the people of Crested Butte, of this church in particular. But um, I think you know what I mean. Um, It is a beautiful place, but this is a very special place. And this community is a very special place. And uh, I'm I'm just, we're all thrilled. I know I speak for Claire and my kids. We're thrilled to be here with you and to walk with you. I'll probably say that every week to walk with you through life and enjoy what God has created and walk through the hard times when the beauty doesn't overcome it. Those times will come. We had the, uh, I, I don't know how I want to say this. We, I was gonna, we took our son to college last week. And some, how many of you have had gotten the privilege of doing that? <laughs> okay. Uh, so a lot of you have been th- through that. You know exactly what that was like. Uh, I did find out that the panhandle of, we went to Arkansas, by the way, is at Fayetteville. The panhandle of Oklahoma, I've never driven through that, but I, I don't need to again. <laughs> Done with that. Uh, wow. Um, that was long. Uh, and it was, it, you know, it, it, was a, it was a long trip and it was exciting to see him in his new place uh, over there. And he was excited about it and, and all of that. So that was good. It was good to hand him off into a warm environment like we were experiencing here. But uh, coming home was pretty hard. And, you know, uh, I'm trying to, you know, I want to be authentic with my family. You know, if I have to cry, I have to cry. And Claire had kind of a hard time on the way home. Uh, I think that's a common thing to have happen. And I did make uh, an error, though, in our return because the we went through part of eastern Colorado on the way home. And that includes some towns that have uh, cattle yards. I don't know, no offense. If you're from eastern Colorado down there, in the bottom corner of the state, it doesn't smell good. It just added to the misery. <laughs> it was bad. It was dark, and all of a sudden we were just asphyxiated <laughs> for 15 minutes. But it will wake you up. Uh, anyway. Uh, Chris told you we're transitioning from the book of Acts, same author. Uh, I don't think we're going to make two years in this one, Jim. Um, 
but several weeks we're going to be here in Acts. So if you will, uh, open up to Acts 1. We're going to be in the first three verses of that book today. And I loved how the worship that we heard, we were a part of this morning and the things that Chris said really do uh, set up what this book of Acts is about. And we're going to be looking at the first few chapters, eight or nine chapters, where the church is beginning. And right up into the place where Paul takes over uh, the story. And you'll see if you, if you read Acts, which I encourage you to do, right around chapter eight or nine, it just switches from a lot of people doing things to a lot of Paul doing things. And what we're going to do is we're going to cut that back part off and come back to it another time. But we're going to stick in this early part of the church and what, what God is doing and Luke is telling this story um, that I hope will encourage us. Well, I'm sure it will, I'm sure it will encourage us. I, I want to ask you with me, if you will. Now, I'm going to read out of the ESV. And I think what we have up here is the New International Version. So you have to do a little translating in your mind as we walk along here. But uh, read this with me. In the first book, Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. And he had presented himself alive to them by his, after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during a period of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So, just like the beginning of the book of, of uh, the, the Gospel of Luke, he addresses it to this person called Theophilus. And we don't know a lot about Theophilus, but he was obviously a person who was a believer and who cared about the history of the church. It may have been someone who uh, commissioned the writing. It might have just been a letter that, that Luke was writing to him, and it was this comprehensive uh, narrative of the story of Jesus. And you see, he describes what he did in his Gospel. He says, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do. So you see uh, all of these stories, but it's interesting that he uses the word began because he's foreshadowing that Jesus is still at work. And Jesus is still moving in this period between the gospel and the book of Acts and then in a different way through the Holy Spirit as the church begins to grow. And at that, if you look in verse 2, you see the, uh, the little hinge between the gospel of Luke and the book of Acts and that's the ascension. So if you were to lay them on top of each other, uh, the ascension would be at the very end in chapter 24 of, of the Gospel of Luke, and it would be at the very beginning of Acts. It's kind of the, this little link in there. And Luke says that in that time, Jesus was showing himself alive to these people, and he was teaching his followers about the Holy Spirit. He was telling about things that were going to come, and again, a little bit of that is revealed, and we'll see that in Luke 24 in just a moment. And it's also right at the beginning here of the book of Acts. But what we're going to focus on today, I just want to just narrow it down to one thing, and that's the resurrection. That's what we're going to talk about today. We're just going to kind of scrape aside this other stuff, not because it's not important, but just because we want to look directly at the resurrection so in verse 3, let me read this one more time. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days. He presented himself 
alive to them after his suffering. If you will, let's take a look back to Luke in chapter 24. So if you have your Bible, if you will turn there. Luke 24. We're going to start at verse 36 and read a little bit about what happens there. Now, remember where the disciples are at this point. Uh, right here at the, beginning, at the beginning of chapter 24 of Luke, the, the gospel of Luke, uh, you have the resurrection. And right after the resurrection, you have the story of the road to Emmaus. You remember that? There are two guys that have said, hey, we're out of Jerusalem. We're going back home. We're going to start over or something because everything fell apart. And Jesus ends up walking beside them. And he reveals himself to them as the Messiah when they're having this dinner together. And immediately those guys take off. Jesus goes to another place and they take off and run all the way back to Jerusalem to find everyone else who's been holed up in this room. And they're hiding because the city's in turmoil, because uh, the Pharisees are definitely not excited about them being around. And of course, the Romans have just interacted with a crucifixion. So there's a lot of pressure on these guys and they're hiding out. These two men come back and that's where we pick up this story in 36. I'm going to read it from up here so we don't have to get confused. While they were still talking about this, that's that uh, appearance of Jesus to these two men, Jesus himself stood among them and said, peace be with you. And they were startled and frightened thinking that they saw a ghost. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do, your, why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of boiled fish and he took it and he ate it in their presence. You know, imagine, if you will, for a minute, being in that room. If you can just take yourself away from here and place yourself in there and try to feel some of the emotions that they're going through. The the week before, just 10 days before they're on top of the world, Jesus is the... Messiah. He's the, he's the one coming to rescue the Jews. And then in just a few days, everything turns upside down. In fact, so dramatically, you know, that he's crucified, the worst thing that could possibly happen. So all of those emotions. And then it's been a couple of days since this crucifixion and burial. And in the morning, you've heard this day that the tomb is empty. And you've, you've left everything. You followed this person And now everything is in turmoil inside of you. And suddenly these two men show up and they're excited. Their conviction is is sincere. You're thinking, could this really have happened? And then suddenly Jesus is present. Jesus is in in their midst. And these people went from being scared from not knowing what the next step would be, from many of them thinking, I'm going to go back home and just start doing what I used to do, to people who would change the world by leading the church. But what made the difference? 
I'm asking you that. What was the difference? Christ's presence, his resurrection. The living Christ in their presence made all the difference. Think about it for a second. There's nothing else that happened there that would cause their transformation. You know, I I often, uh, I'll make this personal, and and maybe this is the same for you, but I often uh, treat the resurrection as if it were mundane. It's kind of a fact, maybe even an artifact of my faith. And it goes in the back of my mind, and I know about it, but it's dusty. We talk about it at Easter. We're talking about it today. But the resurrection is critical to our faith. It is critical to Christianity. And so here's my goal for today. This is what I'm hoping for for each of us as we walk out of here, myself included, is that we will sincerely contemplate the resurrection. I'm not going to try to give you all the answers of how to do that. What I want to do is just suggest that you sincerely contemplate the resurrection. When you leave, when you go home, when you have time with the Lord this week, when you're reading the scripture, contemplate the resurrection. And think about what it means to you. What does the resurrection mean to you? And what does the resurrection mean to this church? And if you're from another place, for instance, Texas, <laughs> which apparently some of you are, uh, what does it mean to your church? What does the resurrection mean to your church? And then one more step, three things to ask. What does the resurrection mean to this town? What is the resurrection? Let's just stop there. We, we know we can go on out from there, but what does it mean to you personally? What does it mean to your church? And what does it mean to this town, to your town? If you're here and you're considering the claims of Jesus, you're thinking about, you know, do, do I want to buy into this? Do I believe this? Uh, the resurrection is a pretty critical piece of it. And I would encourage you just to listen and think it through in, in, in the same way, contemplate it seriously. We, as believers, we have to be honest. We're talking and, and transparent. We're talking about believing in a God-man who sacrificed himself for all of our sin, past, present, and future. All the world's sin, past, present, and future. And we're saying that he was resurrected. And that's a big thing to say. And we need to, we need to know why we say it. We know why it's so important. And we need to know what it means to us. So I do want to say this. The resurrection is essential, and repeat it, is essential to Christianity. Look with me, if you will, at 1 Corinthians 15. And this would be a good place just to mark your Bible concerning things about the resurrection in in terms of teaching and why it's so important. So you can put a little resurrection note there if you're using your your phone or something. You know, uh, highlight that uh, in there as a place where you can go and look for information about resurrection 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. This is Paul, and he's talking about the importance of the resurrection to our faith. For I delivered to you, Corinthians, 
as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. And he appeared to Cephas and then to the 12. And then it goes on to say that he appeared to many, many more. Back up in three, he says, as first importance, I told you this, Christ died for our sins. He's going to tell them three things, essentially. Christ died for our sins. In verse four, that he was buried and that he was raised. And all of that was in, in um, accordance with the scripture. It was in accordance with the scripture. What that means is that everything that happened was already in the scripture. That's what that means. So in the Hebrew scriptures, in Psalms, and even in the words of Jesus before the crucifixion, you see this revelation of the idea of a suffering Savior who would take away our sin and who would be raised on the third day. And rather than go into uh, lots of passages about that, I want to take you to just one. And... uh, and that is in John 2.19. John 2.19. We're going to put that up here. Now, this scenario is when Jesus is clearing out the temple. Remember, and he's turning over the money changers. He's saying, this is not going to happen in my father's place. And he makes some comments in there were a little bit cryptic at the time, but made sense later. Look with me, if you will. And Jesus answered them and he said, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And the Jews replied, it has taken us 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days. But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. And then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. So right there, you're brought back into that room when he's presenting himself alive to them and they're remembering, oh yeah, this is what he said way back at the beginning, that he, was, that he was going to rebuild this temple in three days. Paul goes on to say after this, not only was it prescribed in Scripture that the time would come that uh, Jesus would be raised again, but just later in 15, in 1 Corinthians 15, again, we're just flipping back over there. He says in another way, verse 14 of chapter 15, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Do you have one more to go for? I'll read this. This is from 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So Paul, at the beginning, when he describes in 1 Corinthians 15, he says that this is all prescribed beforehand in the scripture, but you can have confidence that it was planned. And he says, these are the things of first importance. But right after that, just a few verses later, he says, and without the resurrection, you've got nothing. 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 Your faith is futile. Everything I've said to you is futile. It was just a bedtime story, except for the resurrection. I'm trying to emphasize to you and remind myself of the importance and the centrality of the resurrection to our faith. 
There was a, uh, a time in my life in college where I came to, I think I, think I would call it a crisis. Uh, I had become a Christian on my own, but I had inherited my faith from my parents. And that's probably some of you. Uh, and there came a point in my college career where I realized, you know, I believe this, I think. Anybody been in that place before? Occasionally, uh, we, we wrestle with our faith. And I was definitely there. And I began to ask around, and I began to ask myself and ask God, I said, Lord, what is the bottom line? What is the thing that I need as a foundation stone, as a concrete place to put my feet as far as my faith is concerned? Where, what is that? And the thing that I came down to was the authenticity of the resurrection. I had to answer that question. Above all things, if the resurrection was true, everything else made sense. I had to go to the resurrection. And so in, in some conversation, I came across this book. And I, I bet some of you know this because there's over one million in print. Um, and that was 30 years ago. Because um, this is the book. It's called uh, More Than a Carpenter. It's by Josh McDowell. I bet many of you are familiar, have read it, probably been mentioned from the front here before, I would not doubt. But in looking at this book, uh, I learned uh, several things that gave me confidence about the resurrection. And I've done a lot of reading since then. In fact, on, on our Facebook page, I will post uh, two or three references that you might go look at if you're interested in going a little bit further. I'll do that later today. But uh, I think probably the summary, if you want to call it proof, of the resurrection is the transformed life of the disciples. And if you look at all the different ways that apologists try to show that the, the resurrection is a real thing, almost always the whipped cream on the top of that story is that the disciples were changed. That's the thing that shows it really to have taken place. And I want to read to you just a couple of quotes from this book. Um, if you would bear with me. This one is, uh, this one is about the disciples. It says, How have they turned almost overnight into an indomitable band of enthusiasts who have braved opposition, cynicism, ridicule, hardship, prison, and death on three continents as they preached everywhere Jesus and the resurrection. How has that happened? And, and that's the question that I was asking myself. How did this happen? Something real happened with them. And then I want to read you this passage here. It says, uh, it's impossible that the apostles could have persisted in affirming the truths that they narrated had they not known this fact as certainly as they knew any other fact. But the fact is that good people will die for a lie. Is that true? We see it happen all the time. 
good and bad people, will die for a lie. But I want to ask you for a response here. Why do you think it was unlikely that these men and women would choose to do that thing? Why was it unlikely that they would make up this story of resurrection and go on to lead the church? Why is that unlikely? Yeah. Yeah. Who, who are these people, right? These guys are uh, confused. And they had not taken any leadership so far. Okay? What's another reason that it's highly unlikely that they would have stepped out? What? Yeah. In terms of? Right. Right. Exactly. They would have had, they, it, she, Rosie said it was the cost Not only had they not presented themselves as the type of people who could change the world and lead the church, really, just look a little bit. I mean, they're just messed up guys. And and the girls had a lot of problems too, frankly, (laughs) Um, honestly. But all of them together, men and women, led the church going forward, and it started from this little room, right? And they were hiding there because they were afraid of the cost. They were hiding there because they were afraid of the cost. So they would have had to sit around and say, all right, guys, let's invent something and risk our lives for it. And let's go out and let's just risk it all and make something up. How, that's just, that does, it doesn't make sense. And I... <clears throat> It's logically not credible. It just isn't. And uh, one more quote that I had, had to print out here uh, from this book. This is from uh, the philosopher Pascal. Possibly you've heard this. Uh, and this follows up on what you said, Rosie. The allegation that the apostles were imposters, in other words, they made this up, is quite absurd. Let us picture those 12 men meeting after the death of Jesus and entering into a conspiracy to say that he is risen. If any one of those men had given way to the more compelling arguments of prison and torture, they would all have been lost. Maybe one or two of them could have been radicals, but all of them? Uh, most of those core people were martyred for their faith. You know that. Uh, Several by the sword. Some were crucified in even, I guess, worse ways than Jesus was. Uh, One died from natural causes that we know of, John. And one was stoned. Not stoned like Colorado stoned. Um. But what's interesting about that one person is that that person who was stoned was the brother of Jesus, James. But if you, you know, there are a lot of James in the story. But this James 
was not a follower of Christ. He, he did not believe that Jesus was the Son of God when Jesus started his ministry. He rejected him completely. But what was the one thing that caused him to go from rejecting his brother as the Messiah to sacrificing his life and leading the church in the most dangerous place, Jerusalem, the resurrection. It doesn't make sense without the resurrection. The resurrection is central to our faith. And for me, so often, it's just a dusty thing in the back of my mind. And I, and I think that's a shame. So, like I said earlier, what I'd like to do is challenge each of us to go from here. And when we have time alone with God, to sincerely contemplate the resurrection. And I think it would make sense to uh, just uh, meditate a little bit and put yourself in the room with those people, with those men and women who are being confronted with the risen Christ. What if he was looking at you when he said, don't be afraid? Don't be afraid. Could that have changed your life? What if he sat down beside you when he was eating, proving that he was flesh and bone and let you touch him? So, and and here's here's the question that I hesitate to ask myself because it requires a commitment from me, but I'll ask us all for it. What if the resurrection had the kind of transformational impact on us that it had on them. Think about what those people did, a smaller group than this or this. What if the resurrection had the same impact? What would it mean in your life now? What would it mean in this church or your church? And what would it mean in this town? if the resurrection had the same transformational impact on us as it had on those people, those men and women. Let me pray for us and we'll get, move on. God, I just, uh, I come to you, uh, Lord, and I, we confess that we are, um, we often set the resurrection aside. We, uh, there is so much to the gospel and there's so much to the truth of what you've done. But Lord, let us raise up this particularly important part of what you've done for us. Lord, let it change us. God, let us not be afraid to ask that question. God, in, as we sang earlier, that all of the things that um, we're prideful about that we think we own, if we could set all of those aside because of the resurrection, that our lives, our families, our churches, this town, our towns could be transformed. And Lord, we know that your spirit is waiting to join us in that. And Lord, I pray for anyone here who does not know you, uh, who has not come to relationship with you through Jesus. God, may they also carefully contemplate the resurrection. So we lift these things up to you, Lord. We just put ourselves in your hands this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Should we go run Yeah. We're going to have communion this morning. So we'll close with that. And let me ask those who are going to help me with that, that I visited with earlier, to come on up, if you will. 
if you'll just go ahead and grab one of each of these. The uh, table is a time that we come together to remember, even just uh, the moments that happened a few days before Jesus went to the, Jesus was resurrected, the day that he would go to the cross. And I want to invite you to be thinking of uh, his body that was sacrificed, but I also want to invite you to be thinking about his um, resurrection again and what it means to us as you come forward and as you sit. And we'll take both the elements here and return to our seat, and then we'll take them together in just a moment. So uh, come when you're ready, and when we are ready. Perfect.
At his feet the six-winged seraph Cherubim with sleepless eyes Veil their faces to his presence As with ceaseless voice they cry Alleluia, 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 Lord Most High. Alleluia. Alleluia. 